From VT Digger, I'm Mike Dougherty. This is The Deeper Dig. This week, it's been 10 days since the CDC authorized the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine for use in kids ages 5 to 11. And the response in Vermont so far has been strong. As of Friday afternoon, about 15,500 children had either been signed up for appointments or received their first dose. That's about 35% of the eligible population. At the same time, experts have warned that there may be more hesitancy among this group than we've seen among other age groups. Parents are naturally protective of their kids, and national survey data has shown that about two-thirds of parents in this age group are not planning to sign their kids up right away. At VT Digger, we've been collecting readers' questions about the children's vaccine. And this week, we enlisted a veteran Vermont pediatrician to help answer them. Dr. Judy Orton is a pediatrician in Bennington. She's practiced in Vermont for about 30 years. Today, she runs Green Mountain Pediatrics and also practices at Southwestern Vermont Medical Center, where she was previously the chair of the pediatrics department. Today, we'll hear highlights from a live Q&A we recorded with Dr. Orton on Wednesday night. Judy, thanks for being here. Thank you. I've got to ask, what's it like to be a pediatrician in this moment? What's the mood in your office right now? We were excited a year ago when adult vaccines were coming into play and couldn't wait for those to come out so that not only ourselves and our families, but the uh, adults in the state could get vaccinated. Excitement built when adolescents came out, and it's been all summer that we've been kind of waiting with bated breath of when are they going to release it? Um, When's the data going to be ready? Um, Is it going to be good data? So it's been pretty exciting time um, in the fall and with essentially every single encounter with parents of children in this age group, they've been asking when, and and even the kids have been asking, when can I get it? So it's, it's exciting that it finally got approved. Um, Now we're just, you know, we're waiting so that we can uh, actually have it in in our office uh, to deliver it that way too. Yeah. So we'll be digging into that in a little bit, what the logistics here actually look like. But Judy, I wanted to start with just a broad question, and it seems to be kind of underpinning all of the questions that we've heard so far, just sort of the common thread here, which is, is this vaccine safe for 5 to 11-year-olds? And how do we know that? So yes, absolutely, it is safe. Children's immune system is not any different than a 12 to 25-year-old immune system. In fact, it's probably more robust and can respond better. Hmm. We have a lot of data from the 12 to 25 group, as well as the you know older adults. This has probably been the most well-studied and most followed up vaccine in history of, of vaccines, and probably the most public about that too. Hmm. So we have a lot of data to go by. The studies have been ongoing Many parents are worried that it got released too soon, but the technology for this vaccine has been in the works for, you know, 20 years. So the child data was looking at, one, did the the children build an immune response? And that was absolutely yes. Then the next uh, step was, what's the correct dose for them? Because they're just not, you know, little adults. So though their immune system functions the same way, we knew that probably there's going to be a dose difference. So next parts of, the, of that study was looking to see what the correct dose, best dose was going to be 
to cause the best protection with the least amount of side effects. So we have good data on that. Was there millions of children studied? Absolutely not. But there's enough to be able to come to really good scientific conclusions with with the numbers that were studied. Sarah from Rutland wrote to us asking, what are the side effects and what are the long-term effects? The most common is is pain at the injection site, which is no different than any other vaccine. And uh, rarely did they get uh, side effects such as a fever or a headache that is a little bit more common in the adult population. So they have fared very well. The adults for Pfizer would get 30 micrograms, determined that the kids only need 10 micrograms. It will be two doses, um, ideally at least three weeks apart. I know with the first rollout, some of the parents have had some angst because the third week hits on Thanksgiving. So there's not any clinics going. So they have to be delayed just a few more days before they can get their second dose. That's okay, you know, to, to be delayed. It just, we can't give it too early. We did get one question from Linda in Essex asking about the two-shot regimen. Why is it that this needs to be a two-shot vaccine? Why do children need to come back after they've gotten that first dose and get that second one? Um, The first dose primes the immune system. So again, um, this vaccine, the mRNA doesn't stay in our bodies for long. It is the blueprint. Think of it as the instruction manual for putting together the children's toys on Christmas Eve. And our body reads those instructions a whole lot better than we read those instructions to put those toys together. Hmm. So it it gives them the information for that blueprint to make the antibodies. But the booster doses then just increases the robustness of the response so that it gets it up into that 90% range. Off the top of my head, I can't recall any vaccine other than way back when smallpox, which isn't even given anymore, have only been a single dose. Every single vaccine in our arsenal have uh, at least one booster dose, if not several. And it, again, it's just a primed immune system. It depends on the age of the child, too, of, of how many. The first season a child under 10 gets influenza, they need two doses to prime. After that, it's just a single dose. Hmm. A lot of this speaks to, to kind, of the, kind of the how, the how of, vaccinating of vaccinating children. children. We've, We've also, also gotten a number, number of questions, questions about, about why. why. One of them, one of them Deb, Deb from Essex, Essex. Uh, Deb writes, COVID is not a childhood disease. disease. In fact, the, in numbers, fact, the numbers of children who have died from COVID, COVID is minuscule compared to some other diseases. Why would we put our children at risk for the potential and unknown side effects from the COVID vaccine, especially when they have less risk from contracting COVID? So they don't have less risk of contracting the disease. They can still get it. They can still spread it. They have less risk for the major side effects and consequences compared to, say, our elderly population, but it still happens. Hmm. We don't expect children in that 5 to 11 group to die. They're not supposed to die. COVID is still the eighth leading cause of death in the 5 to 11 group. So that lends some perspective. Have there been many deaths? No, but one death is one too many. The vaccine has not caused any deaths. We can't predict who is going to be a long hauler, who is going to have long-term consequences, who might get um, pneumonia and need oxygen or even, you know, worse, be in the ICU and be intubated. We don't know who might get the multi-system inflammatory disease, the, the MIS-C. It happens, and vaccines can prevent a good share of those. 
so kind of my question back is why wouldn't you? You know, the other advantage is if you've boosted the child's immune system, you, you've given them the blueprint to respond because it's in our nature. We want to protect our children um, and do the best and prepare them for being healthy adults. So that's what this vaccine does. It prepares our immune system to fight this off, maybe prevent it entirely, or certainly give it mild disease. I have a teenager who is now a year and a half out from asymptomatic COVID. She still does not have taste or smell. She had asymptomatic COVID. Why should she have lost her taste or smell? That's the, the beast of this, of this virus is that it's pretty unpredictable. Protecting with the vaccine is much more predictable and definitely is, is safe. I want to ask more broadly, I mean, because we've just gotten a range of questions about this that suggest this possibility of future unknown side effects or long-term effects. And I wonder, what's generally your response when you've got parents who are coming into you and saying that they feel like we just don't know right now because the vaccine is relatively new? What do you tell those parents? What is kind of the general response to this idea that there might be unknowns that we just haven't had time to study yet? So we have a 60 plus year track record with vaccines in general and how our immune system responds. So this vaccine, again, isn't any different than all the other childhood vaccines and vaccines we get as adults to help the immune system memory. In the history of vaccines, there has never been anything, any long-term consequences past about eight weeks. So we definitely have eight weeks of history. We have longer than that in these studies to know of any long-term consequences from the vaccine itself. So I can say with 100% confidence that there isn't any long-term consequences from having the vaccine. Short-term consequences, they might be a little fussy. They might have complaint of arm soreness. They might get a headache or a fever. 99% of them, once they get through the, um, sometimes what I call to parents, the drama of having the shot, even those kids who kind of give me a hard time, at the end they go, oh, that was it. <laughs> so truly long-term side effects from the vaccine just is not going to happen. There are two specific things that seem to come up over and over again in these types of questions. One is myocarditis, a kind of heart inflammation, and the other is mast cell activation system, MCAS. Could you speak to what those two complications are and why those seem to be coming up in conversation around this? So both of those things can happen with uh, COVID disease. As with any vaccine, some of the side effects of vaccines is it simulates the disease. For instance, a 12-month-old gets the measles, mumps, rubella. Potentially a week to 10 days later, they may get a fever and a measly-type rash that just shows that the immune system was responding. They get over it and are, are back to normal with normal skin within a couple days. So myocarditis and MIS-C certainly can happen with COVID. That's one of the things that's worrisome. It's more common in teenage boys. And with the rollout of the 12 to 17 group, there have been some instances of mild myocarditis after the second dose in boys. It doesn't seem to affect the girls, 
at the most, it was like an overnight stay in the hospital and complete recovery. Um, it was more of a scare than anything else. And, you know, certainly if you're the one going through it, you're the family going through it, it can be pretty scary. But all of these, these boys have, have recovered. What's more scary to me, dealing with adolescents, young adults, um, I, you know, I take care of college age, age and, uh, you know, they're playing sports in high school, they're playing sports in college, is that we've had some athletes over this past year have contracted COVID gone out onto the practice field with unknown myocarditis and had sudden death. So there is a protocol in place and has been for well over a year that any child, um, teenager with COVID has to come back in or certainly be screened, you know, teleconference, depending on the age for myocarditis. We have a series of questions. They may need a, a, a physical exam. They may need an EKG. I've had one in my practice that needed to go see the cardiologist um, because the EKG was abnormal, just to make sure that is okay for them to go back to practice and start being physically active. In fact, you know, one of our instructions when they get COVID, even if it's asymptomatic, one, you have to be home and isolating anyways, but you're not to go outside and play and run around and get all heated up. It's quiet activities because your heart and lungs need all they can do to combat the virus and not be strained um, because we don't know what the virus might be doing to the heart and lungs at that point. It sounds like what I'm hearing from you is that these risks are really more associated with the disease, with actually getting COVID, than they are with the vaccine. Correct. Correct. They, they can happen with a vaccine. Um, more commonly in, in the, the 12 to 17-year-old group, but we're, you know, common is this, it's one in 10,000 that might have an ER visit or an overnight stay and complete recovery. They did some scientific modeling for the five to 11 group and looking, you know, before that the vaccine was even released. And one of the questions was, is this vaccine the right thing to do for a child? And they looked at the risk benefits. And that was one of the things that they looked at was the myocarditis and the risk of anything from the vaccine and the immediate immediacy of the vaccine in that five to 11 is less than the one in 10,000 by modeling. So the answer to the question, which is why the vaccine got approved was that, yes, this is beneficial for our children. Um, we certainly don't want to, you know, as a pediatrician, I never want to do harm. I mean, that's the physician creed, but I do want to protect the kids and this is one step in protecting them. Got it. I want to get back to some of the logistical concerns that some folks have. Bo in South Burlington wrote, my two kindergartners are needle phobic. If the shots are administered at school, I hope that it can be done outside or in a manner that parents of such children can accompany them during the shot. I imagine a lot of that is going to vary from clinic to clinic, depending on who's leading it and what the venue is like. But I wonder if you could talk about needle phobia more broadly. How can people kind of set expectations around that? The rare child and, you know, the parents and I will have talked about it ahead of time is that we don't do any warning. That's a rare child. I think most children should be prepared that a vaccine, this is what a vaccine is. You know, there's play kits, they can play and give their parents a pretend shot. They can get a pretend shot at home, treat it pretty matter of factly. This is going to help you stay healthy. You know, for some of my kids, I even say, 
I'm pretty sure that your sister pulls your hair harder than this is going to feel. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're like, oh, yeah, you're right. But I can't speak to the school-based clinics. We're not having them down here in, in, um, uh, in Bennington because the hospital has um, their clinic set up. But certainly no child is going to be given the vaccine without parental consent. So if, if parents have worries that they're sending their uh, child to school and it's a vaccine day and they didn't want to have the vaccine, no worries. Your child won't get the vaccine. It needs to have parental consent. There's lots of different places to get the vaccine in the state. You know, for us here in Bennington, the Southwestern Vermont Medical Center at the old Southern Vermont College has the gymnasium set up for COVID testing and COVID vaccines and parents can, can accompany. There's a few pharmacies in, in the state that are giving vaccines. And then the rollout will be coming to almost all the pediatric offices. You know, I'm hopeful that by next Thursday afternoon, I will have a small amount of vaccine to be able to, to run the COVID parking lot clinic, as I'm calling it, uh, that we have set up on the 19th. There's a lot of practices that, you know, we, you know, since COVID, our, our way of practicing has changed. Um, so many practices have been doing parking lot clinics, um, even our routine vaccines. If it's a vaccine only visit, uh, my nurse or I go out to the car to give the vaccines. Um, we started that with the flu vaccine last year. It was successful. Parents asked me, hey, you doing that again? Because man, that was quick. That was easy. The kids were less stressed. I noticed that the kids were less stressed. They weren't sitting in the waiting room waiting to be called back. You know, they could have their music playing or whatever. Um, For the littles that were getting the flu vaccine, they're kind of strapped into their car seat, so they couldn't, they're easier to hold. But we did whatever, you know, needed to be done for for the kiddos. Um, Some kids wanted to sit on their, their, the, tailgate of the pickup truck. I'm like, okay, whatever. Um, I'm, I'm game for anything. So we're going to do the same thing with COVID. Um, I believe that, that a lot of the other um, pediatric practices in the, in the state will kind of do something similar, um, or they may have designated rooms in, in their offices for that. But eventually it will, will have a, a robust enough supply. But in this first month, it may be, you know, you get it where you can get it. But certainly we always want the parent support. A couple more logistical questions. Erica from Rochester writes, what if my child is asymptomatically positive for COVID and I don't know it and they receive the COVID vaccine? Is it suggested to test children ages 5 to 11 immediately prior to receiving the vaccine? No, it, it, testing beforehand is is not recommended. The only thing that we're um, screening for if they've had, you know, within the day before a fever, a cough, a runny nose, so symptomatic potential COVID on any other number of cold viruses, then we would postpone the vaccine. We would test, test for COVID. You know, generally vaccines are held not for runny noses, although in the case of COVID, we'd want to test to make sure that runny nose was not COVID. But generally, all vaccines are held if, if a child is febrile and until that fever illness goes away it's because the immune system needs to deal with the fever illness and not have to, to work to, to prime the body for whatever disease we're protecting against. Um, so no testing, 
you know, if you know that you've, there's been a known exposure, then certainly go ahead and get tested per protocols. If there's questions about timing of, of testing, you certainly can call their primary care provider and they'll be able to walk them through. Libby from Randolph wrote, will getting vaccinated result in a positive PTR test if it's taken shortly after receiving the shot? My son is scheduled to get his jab right before he has to take a COVID test at school. I don't want to reschedule the vaccine appointment or have the test result in him missing more school. Does that make sense? Yes. And and that's a great question. But because the vaccine isn't actually giving you COVID, you're not going to test positive. The test, the PCR test picks up for viral particles in your nose. So all the shot does, the vaccine is, is, again, put the blueprint in there for the immune system to build proteins or antibodies to protect against the actual virus. But it doesn't, it's not in your saliva, it's not in your tears, it's not in your urine, it's not in your nose. So you can't, unless you actually have been exposed to to COVID and are positive for COVID, you will not test positive on a PCR. Keep that scheduled appointment. It's okay. Good. Um, A couple more kind of looking forward. Uh, Shailene in East Montpelier writes, will kids 5 to 11 need boosters after their original two shots? When my daughter turns 12 in less than a year, will she need another shot then? For right now, because the only ones that, that boosters are recommended for are 18 above, and then there's certain subsets within that 18 and above. So right now for the, for the under 18 population, it's because only Pfizer has been approved so far, it's only two shots. If you're 11 years and 10 months and getting the vaccine this month, I should say 11 years and 11 months and a week and getting the vaccine, say this week, you would get the five to 11 dose. Your booster dose, because your child now has turned 12, will be the adult uh, dosage, the 12 and above dose. So it's whatever age your child is, is the type of vaccine that you would get. If you get both doses because you're under 11, you're, you're good to go. There's not any boosters. That will be what will be determined in the long-term studies and surveillance, which is you know why adults are now getting some boosters, healthcare wa- workers, elderly, um, high-risk individuals, because again, our immune system is not as robust and just needs to be reprimed so that we can, you know, be further protected along with all the other mitigation measures that we've been doing. One more kind of looking ahead, JR, I don't know where JR is from, but JR asks, what is the timeline for kids under five? When Pfizer submitted data to the FDA on five to 11 year olds in September, I think they said data on two to fours was just a few weeks behind, but I've heard nothing since. What do we know? That's a good question. I, I, and I don't know the answer to that one. Um, I, know, I know it's it's in the works. I, you know, probably the, the two to five, you know, two, two to less than five group will be the one that will be rolled out next. I mean, they are studying for six months um, to two years also. I think the timeline is going to be a little bit later. So sometime in 2022 for that two to five year group, I get a lot of parent questions on that one too. 
because it certainly it would make the logistics of childcare a whole lot easier for parents um, also, um, particularly since that age group tends to have lots of runny noses and vomiting and, you know, any number of things. And the question, uh, which is what made has one of the things that has made practicing pediatrics so much more difficult and fatiguing to, for all of us is that every single question that comes in about a runny nose or somebody threw up, or someone has diarrhea, oh, do we need to test for COVID? What's the exposure? What's the risk? So we have to think about every single encounter instead of just like, oh, they're feeling fine. They're bouncing around. They have a little runny nose, no big deal. It is a big deal if it's COVID because one, we wanna know to be able to monitor that child, but we also don't want them spreading to some something else. So, you know, I. To be honest, I can't wait also until that two to five group, but I, I expect it's probably not going to be, you know, more, probably more towards spring. Okay. Well, I know we're coming up on our time limit here. I'm hoping we can squeeze in just a couple last questions from some of our live viewers, just to kind of bring this back to some of what we were talking about up top. Jenna asks, is this still considered an experimental shot and how long will studies go on for I think the studies will go on for years, particularly since we've got electronic capabilities. I still get occasional emails of, how are you feeling? Have you had COVID? So just surveillance questions, um, which are, are important tracking. This is not experimental. It was an emergency use authorization, but to get to the emergency use authorization is no different than the full-fledged authorization. So it wasn't pushed through. They had to look at the same data. They had to weigh all the risk benefits. There was no shortcuts. It's just that bureaucracy being bureaucracy, if we waited for full use, as you see, you know, how long did it take for the adults to get through to full use instead of offering the emergency use authorization in this crisis of COVID and in, in the, in the millions of, of deaths worldwide? That's why it circumvented some of the bureaucracy, but not the science and not the rigor of the testing. And, and one other thing uh, that, again, has just kind of come up repeatedly in a lot of these questions, um, you know, one uh, that, that specifically has arisen is this question of natural immunity. If, if so many kids have already contracted COVID, um, you know, combined with that overall reduced uh, you know, risk of severe impacts to them. Um, again, this question of why, why is it still worth doing uh, with this age group uh, with all those factors considered? So COVID is a coronavirus and it's a cold virus. Why do we get colds multiple times throughout the year? For us in the Northeast, you know, that October to, to March time is, is prime time. It's because our body has some immunity but it doesn't have full immunity to every single cold virus. COVID has proven that it mutates a lot and quickly and each mutation, you know, it's trying to survive. And so each mutation is a little bit worse than the previous one. There have been people who've gotten COVID a second time around. And again, it's those same risks for nothing may happen, but something might, you might get pneumonia. What if you had RSV or you had strep throat and then you get COVID shortly thereafter, you've had mono and you get COVID shortly thereafter, your immune system has been pretty taxed. So you may have more severe disease. So to prevent that is, is a good thing. 
The other thing is, is, and this is just be based on because COVID, particularly to transmission to adults, can be so significant and so severe, and we've rethought this on, on other diseases too, that people have to isolate. They have to stay home from school. Kids miss out on school. They miss out on instructions. Our kids are behind, as the recent data just posted, I think, yesterday or today has shown on the standardized testing. So we've got to keep them in school, keep them in activities. The vaccine is a way to, to do that. Because if you're vaccinated and you get exposed, you can continue to be in school. You get tested, but you don't have to stay home. I have a, a family who chose to not vaccinate. The parents got ill. The father actually ended up in the hospital. He's home now. But the kids have been out of school because of the timeline and the, and the rigors of the isolation of who ended isolation, the lat, you know, finished their quarantine, then the kids who've been tested negative, they've been out of school for six weeks. Had they not had to go through that because if they'd been vaccinated, they could have stayed in school. So, you know, it, it makes a difference for, for getting, keeping the kids healthy, preventing some uh, severe consequences of the disease and keeping them in their learning environment, in their social environment, in their sports and activities which they sorely need. We know with you know, the COVID shutdown, how it affected all of us and it, it impacted the, the children and their emotional health. And we wanna get back to them being fun, loving kids and not having, having to stay home and not be with their friends. Great, well, I think we have to end it there. Judy, I really appreciate you joining us again and giving us some time tonight. I know you're very busy as a pediatrician working during this time right now. And so I appreciate you jumping on to talk some of this through with us. You're welcome. Thank you for asking me. Take care. You can learn more about the kids' COVID vaccine at vtdigger.org. And if you're looking to make a vaccine appointment for your own child through the state system, head to healthvermont.gov slash kidsvaccine. You'll find listings of all the upcoming clinics, as well as pharmacy locations that are giving shots to 5 to 11-year-olds. You're listening to The Deeper Dig, a weekly podcast from the VT Digger newsroom. Search for it and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, and you'll get new episodes as soon as they land. We used music this week by Blue Dot Sessions. We'll be back next week with more stories from the Digger newsroom. See you then.